God. Please be seated. This morning we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. Let me pray once more and ask for God's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Father, we are so thankful for giving us so many reasons to sing this morning. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit now to help each one of us to understand and apply and be changed by your holy, inspired, life-giving, inerrant word. Lord, I confess, we confess that nothing good will happen unless you send your spirit to work mightily in us. Father, we pray that you would manifest your presence through the preached word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as the resurrected Christ is exalted. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stephen was humble and sincere, and he appeared to want to do the right thing. I met with Stephen and roughly 10 other guys roughly every Saturday for two years. He was in one of my discipleship groups uh, in Fairfax, Virginia came from a strong Christian family. He seemed to love theology. He seemed to love Jesus. He seemed to love the church. So I was shocked and surprised when I heard a year ago, 20 years later, that Stephen is no longer identifying with Jesus. Now, he's not the only one. I think about my friend Andy, who I knew well in college, I think about my friend Adam. I think about Joshua Harris. I think about the comedic duo Rhett and Link. All these people have walked away from Jesus. Now, I'm sure that you all know people who once followed Christ and who now no longer follow Christ. And when that happens, when you and I know people like that, it raises all kinds of questions for us. For instance... Am I going to persevere till the end? Is it possible to have assurance of salvation in light of my friends falling away? Who are the real sheep? Those are great questions. And fortunately, those questions are all answered by this morning's text. This morning's text, John 10, 22 to 31, is one of the strongest perseverance passages in the whole Bible. This passage clearly, unequivocally teaches that all of God's sheep will persevere until the end. So this morning, if you're one of Christ's sheep, you will persevere until the end. God promises us that. But that raises the question, am I, are you truly one of God's sheep? Well, to help us understand this morning's fantastic text, we're going to look at two subjects. First is the characteristic of God's sheep, and second is the preservation of God's sheep. First is the characteristic of God's sheep. What are the character qualities or the marks of God's sheep? Who are the real sheep? Well, this text lays out for us some of those marks that help us identify who the real sheep are. So what are those marks? Well, God's sheep, first and foremost, believe Christ. Look with me at John 10, 22 to 26. Verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Solomon. 
So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now here by highlighting the unbelief of the religious leaders, Jesus is teaching us something about the nature of his sheep. These leaders are not his sheep, therefore they do not believe, which implies that everyone who is one of Christ's real sheep actually believe. They possess saving faith, sincere faith, genuine faith. Notice what Jesus says in verse 26. This is somewhat surprising. He says this, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. It seems like he would say the opposite. Because you do not believe, you are not my sheep. But that's not what he says. Again, he says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. From a human perspective, we become sheep by believing the gospel. But from the divine perspective, only God's sheep, those chosen in eternity past, can believe the gospel. Now, there's great mystery here. Anyone everywhere who believes the gospel will be saved. But Jesus clearly says here that only his sheep will believe, which is very encouraging in a moment. Back to the point. Saving faith, genuine faith, is the mark of God's sheep. But what is saving faith? About six months ago, I bought a motorcycle, a 1983 Honda Ascot 500 in mint condition. Now, I know, I know motorcycles are really dangerous. And I know, I know, it was probably a midlife crisis move. But I have it, and it's really fun. And I'm probably going to sell it this spring. <laughs> because they're very dangerous. But I haven't ridden one in 25 years since I was in college, so when I bought it, I took it out and rode it quite a bit. Then I took it home and said to my two younger boys, Andrew and Henry, I would love to take you for a ride on my motorcycle. I want you to climb on back, hold on tight, and we'll go around the neighborhood. It'll be a blast. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> now, both boys were somewhat apprehensive. I don't know why, but they were scared to climb on the back of my motorcycle and go for a ride with me. So I said to one of them, I said, son, I know it's kind of scary, but do you trust me? And he didn't really give me an answer. <laughs> I said, I promise I'll go slow. We'll just stay in the neighborhood, our HOA, no other cars. It'll be safe. Just trust me and hop on the back and hold on. And he still wouldn't hop on. So I finally said, look, I'm not going to make you ride this motorcycle with me. But if you do, it'll be really fun. Do you trust me? So finally, this child climbed on the back of the motorcycle, held on to my waist for dear life as we rumbled down the road of our neighborhood. Because he trusted me, 
Now, it wasn't perfect trust. He was a little afraid. But because he trusted me, he climbed on the back of that motorcycle and held on for dear life as we rumbled down the road. That is saving faith. If you really trust Jesus, if your faith is real, you're going to climb on the back of Christ's motorcycle and hold on for dear life. You're going to go wherever he tells you to go because you're with him and he's with you. Saving faith is more than believing certain facts about Jesus. James 2 says that even the demons believe. They're much more orthodox than all of us, yet they're going to hell. Saving faith involves trust, confidence, and a willingness to act. I love how the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in the 1640s, defines saving faith. It says this, the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. Accepting, receiving, and then resting upon Christ alone. God's sheep have faith. They rest upon Christ alone for salvation. It's more for them than intellectual acceptance of facts. They understand their need for Jesus, and they rest on him alone. They cry out to him for mercy and grace and compassion. Do you have saving faith? Well, how would you know? Let's keep reading. God's sheep believe Christ. In addition, God's sheep follow Christ. Now, I've been harping on this for a while because Christ has been harping on this for a while in John 8, 9, and 10. So this is really important to Jesus. God's sheep believe Christ, and God's sheep follow Christ. Verse 27, my sheep, says Jesus, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They follow me. If you're truly one of God's sheep, you'll hear his voice as he speaks to us in the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit. You'll be drawn to him, and you'll follow him. God's sheep, by the way, love the scriptures, and they obey the scriptures because in the scriptures, Jesus Christ is speaking to us, and we hear his voice. We do whatever the shepherd tells us to do in the scriptures. We follow him. God's sheep hear his voice, and they follow him. When all is said and done, this is the only test that matters. It doesn't matter how much theology you know, how many degrees you have, how long you've gone to church. If you're not following Jesus, you're not one of his sheep. Not my words, Christ's words. This is what God's sheep are known for. Now, a few months ago, some friends gave us a little kitten. And we named her I named her, even though I used to despise cats. I named her Sophie, and she very quickly crawled into my heart. She's very cute and very sweet, but unfortunately, members of my family have cat allergies, so we had to get rid of her a couple of weeks ago and give her to someone else in the church who were taking great care of her. But while we had the kitten, it did not take me long to make one simple, clear, obvious observation. Kittens... Cats in general do not follow their masters. That's what cats are known for. 
Routinely I would say, Sophie, get off the couch. Nothing. <laughs> Sophie, come to me. Nothing. Sophie, get off the bed. Nothing. She totally ignored me all the time. Now, I grew up with dogs, and dogs obey their masters. Can I get an amen? And now with shock collars, dogs really obey their masters. Dogs are known for following or obeying their masters. Cats are not known for following, submitting to, or obeying their masters. God's sheep are known for following Jesus. It's what they're known for. Now, in the days of Jesus, when there were multiple sheep uh, folds or multiple um, shepherds and all kinds of sheep everywhere, each shepherd had to mark his sheep to know which sheep were his. And a lot of shepherds would put a little mark on the ear of the sheep. I'm glad I'm not a sheep. That would hurt. Now, the Puritans of the 17th century picked up on that. I'm sorry, 16th century, 17th century. And they said that every Christian actually has two marks. Not one mark, but two marks. A mark on the ear and a mark on the foot. The mark on the ear means that sheep hear God's voice. The mark on the foot means that sheep follow Jesus. Who are the sheep? It's those that hear his voice and believe and those that follow. That's who the sheep are. And I wonder, how many churchgoers have ever really heard the voice of the shepherd? This morning, everyone heard the voice of the musicians, you're hearing my voice right now, but have you really heard the voice of Jesus? Well, you'll know if you believe the gospel, if you rest upon Christ, and if you follow him. That's who the sheep are. It's those who believe and those who follow. Now, that raises the question, is God able to preserve those sheep until the end? And the answer is yes, which brings us to the second point. First, the characteristics of God's sheep, and second, the preservation of God's sheep. Will God preserve his sheep until the end? Yes. Consider a few things. Consider the permanence of God's preservation. Look with me at verse 28. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. How long will God preserve his sheep? For all eternity, Jesus promises to give his sheep eternal life. What is eternal life? Eternal life is a couple of things. Eternal life includes a quality of life. Eternal life is a really good life because eternal life is rooted in uh, knowing the triune God, knowing Christ. John 17, 3 says this, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life refers to a quality of life, but eternal life also refers to a duration of life. Eternal life lasts how long? For eternity, it lasts forever. It goes on forever and ever and ever. If, life, if this life lasts forever, then it can never be taken away. 
eternal life is permanent. Now imagine acquiring a loan for a home that had a 30-year lifespan. Not hard to imagine for most of us. Your payments are $2,000 a month. You make your payments faithfully every month, but after six or seven years, the bank comes to you and says, I know you're making your payments faithfully, but we don't like you anymore, so we are going to foreclose on your loan and take your home back. Now, if that happened, what would you do? You would say, wait a minute. The legalese in this loan says that if I make my payments every month, I have this loan for 30 years. I am paying faithfully. You have no right to take this home away from me. I'm going to lawyer up because I'm an American. That's what Americans do. The legal conditions say 30 years. Therefore, you have 30 years. Jesus is telling us, I am giving you eternal life which means it's eternal, it'll last forever, which means it will not end in 30 years or 40 years or 60 years or 70 years or 10,000 years or 10 trillion years. Eternal life lasts forever. Notice what Jesus says, verse 28 again, I give them eternal life. Here's the good news of Christianity. Eternal life is a gift. There is nothing that you and I can do to earn it. No matter how hard we work, no matter how godly we are, we can never ever earn this, so stop trying and receive. Eternal life is a gift of God's grace. No matter what you've done or who you've done it with, God offers this to you freely. All you have to do is receive it with the arms of faith. Furthermore, God's gift will never be taken away. God gives us eternal life. That's his gift to us. It lasts forever, and God never gives his gifts away. Romans eleven twenty nine. 29, Paul says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, which means that God will not take that gift away from us. How do we know that God will preserve his sheep? Consider the permanence of God's preservation. In addition, consider the promise of God's preservation. There's the permanence of God's preservation and now the promise of God's preservation. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus makes an amazing promise in these Verses, in this verse, he promises that his sheep will never perish. If you're a Christian, the great shepherd promises that you will never, ever perish, which means that you will never, ever go to hell. No matter how hard your life is, if you're a Christian, the best is yet to come because you will not perish. God promises that if you're one of his sheep, you will not perish. What a promise. Furthermore, God promises that no one will snatch us out of his hand. Now, what does that term, no one, mean? It means no one, nothing, nada. The marauding, marauding wolf of verse 12 will not snatch us out of God's hands. 
The thieves and robbers mentioned in verse 1 and 8 will not snatch us out of God's hands. I love how the Apostle Paul expands on what this, these words, no one, mean. In Romans 8, verse 35 to 39, the Apostle Paul writes these amazing words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That pretty much covers everything. Paul and Christ are both saying that no circumstance, no trial, no amount of political corruption, no amount of sickness, no amount of pain, no amount of relational strife, no amount of abuse, no amount of persecution, nothing, no one will ever be able to separate you, God's sheep, from God's hand. I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly encouraging. Well, say some, I know that no one can snatch me out of God's hand, but can't I somehow climb out of God's hand? No! (laughs) Because Jesus says, my sheep will never perish. And why do you think you are exempt from the words, no one? Here's the point. How do we know that God will preserve us? Because God promises to preserve us. Now at this point, we must remember that this is the promise, not of a mere mortal. Unfortunately, human beings break their promises so often, we have a hard time trusting God when he promises something. But here he's promising that no one will snatch us out of his hand. Furthermore, If Jesus breaks this promise to us, he will fail to complete his Father's assignment given in John 6. Remember John 6, verse 39 to 40? And this is the will of him who sent me. Jesus says that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Christ promises, with a capital P, to preserve His sheep until the end. Now, who is this promise for? This doctrine is called the perseverance of the saints, not just those who pray a prayer or walk down an aisle or have an experience at a church camp. No. This promise is only for the saints. It's for those who hear Christ's voice and follow him, which helps explain all of our friends who have walked away 
from the faith. Now this sobers me because a lot of those friends I knew sure seemed like Christians. Man, read their Bibles, they prayed, went to church, served, but they fell away proving that they were never God's sheep and also proving that you and I can deceive ourselves and deceive others pretty well. But this text really is about preservation, not our responsibility to persevere, which we are to do. If you read the book of Hebrews, that's very clear. But this text is emphasizing that God preserves his own until the end. At this point, we must interpret our, our experiences in light of Scripture, not the other way around. No matter what you've seen with your friends, Jesus very clearly says that he promises to preserve his own until the end. Well, how do we know God will preserve his sheep? Consider the permanence of God's preservation. Consider the power, I'm sorry, consider the promise of God's preservation. And finally, Consider the power or the plurality of God's preservation. Now, I debated on which word to use there, power or plurality. I think you'll see why in a moment. John 10, 29 to 30, Jesus says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Okay, just in case we're not clear. <laughs> Christ wants to make it abundantly clear. Not only does he promise to preserve us and hold on to us, God the Father is also involved in our preservation, which means the work of preservation is a wonderfully triune operation of our majestic God. God the Father and God the Son, and by implication, God the Spirit are all working to preserve us until the end. There's a plurality of preservation, and there's great power in this preservation. Theologians, by the way, call this inseparable operations. Whenever a certain member of the Trinity is involved in something, the other members are involved to some extent. God the Son and God the Father are both involved in the work of preservation. Now, this does not at all imply that God the Son is too weak to preserve us. Rather, it implies that not only does God the Son care about our preservation, but God the Father also cares about our preservation. Both those members of the Trinity are intimately involved in preserving us. Is there a greater team? Of course not. Is there a more powerful team inside or outside of the universe? Of course not. God the Son and God the Father are intimately involved in preserving us. And I love how Jesus says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Just in case we forgot, God the Father is really, really powerful. He created the universe out of nothing, and those hands are holding on to us, metaphorically speaking. When my kids were younger, we took them for walks, sometimes we walked down sidewalks next to busy streets. 
Sometimes we walked through busy parking lots with cars going everywhere. And so we would often say to our children, children, child, hold on to my hand. If you let go, you'll run away, a car will hit you, and you'll die. Nothing like a little motivation to help our kids obey us. But that's not what God says to us. God says to us, when we're in the parking lot of life, I'm going to hold on to your hand. God the Father says, specifically, I'm going to hold on to your right hand, and no matter what you do, you cannot let go. And I'm not going to let go, ever. And then God the Son says, I'm going to hold on to your left hand, and I'm never going to let go. No matter what you do, I'm not going to let go. I'm going to preserve you until the end. Yesterday, to test this, I was with my boys at the Valley Mall parking lot. I said, Andrew and Henry, I'm going to hold your hands, and I want you to try to run away. We're in a parking lot. (laughs) And they tried, and they tried, and they tried, but I've been working out. And they could not let go. Why? I'm stronger than them. How much stronger is God than us? God the Father and God the Son, metaphorically speaking, are holding on to both of our hands, and they promise they will not let go, even if we try to let go. God's going to hold on to us. He's going to preserve us until the end. Now, at this point, maybe you're wondering, if I'm really that secure in God the Father's hand, in God the Son's hand, then why not do whatever I want? Why not live recklessly? Why not sin if God's going to preserve me until the end? Because of this simple fact. When you and I are intimately aware of how much God the Father and God the Son love us, when we're aware of God's unfathomable love, it causes us to love God in return. And love for God is by far the greatest motivation for godliness. Knowledge of God's preservation is not an excuse for reckless living. We must persevere until the end, which means that you and I must apply ourselves to the ordinary means of grace, Bible reading, prayer, fellowship, and church attendance. But we can do those things because God is sovereignly preserving us behind the scenes. We persevere because God preserves us. And this text this morning is highlighting God's work of preservation. He is sovereign. He loves us, and he's holding on to us. Now, a few centuries ago, there was a godly minister in the little town of Harrington, Scotland. Everyone knew this minister to be a wise, godly, theologically sound shepherd who had all kinds of wonderful pastoral sensitivities. Now, he went to perform a pastoral duty that was often performed back then that isn't performed as much today, and that is he went to spend time with a member of his church who was dying. Her name was Mary. So he shows up 
at Mary's house and walks into her small room, and there's people everywhere, and as he walks through the crowd, they kind of make way for the esteemed reverend. And he walks up to her bed, and he says, Mary, I know you're about to die, and we are all so thankful that you are trusting Jesus, and we're so thankful that in a few moments, you are going to be in the presence of the triune God. And there's going to be an incredible sense of joy, unspeakable, and full of glory. And we're so thankful that so far God has preserved you. And then he paused for a moment, and he shifted gears. And he said, now Mary, what would happen if in the next few moments, God let go of you and you let go of God. And when you died, you perished. Everyone thought, our minister has lost his mind. What is he saying to poor Mary? And he kept on with his questioning. And Mary said, oh, dear pastor, that would never happen. And he said, why? Explain to me why that would never happen. And she said, God would lose far more than I would. And the minister said, what? What do you mean? Explain that to me. And she said this, well, I would lose my eternal soul, but God would lose his honor. And God is committed to his honor. He's committed to his glory. Therefore, when I die, I know with confidence that I will be in his presence. And the pastor said, okay, you're ready to die. You and I can be confident that God will preserve us until the end if we're his sheep because God is committed to his honor. He's committed to his glory. And if he loses one of his sheep, he will not receive as much glory as he is due. Let's pray.